White House on January 20th. Barack Obama and his family will be in residence. The uh, purpose of this program is uh, to have a discussion uh, about media, White House relations, the group of people who have been there. This is the third of a program that is done in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, the publication of my little book, uh, What Do We Do Now? Uh, our guests, uh, oh, I should say, by the way, that the, the great interest in the uh, Obama election and transition around the world uh, has um, engaged the, the State Department in making an online video of this discussion and future ones in our series available around the world on its um, uh, website and uh, website of the Washington Foreign Press uh, Center. We also welcome uh, these uh, visitors from C-SPAN, uh, who will be broadcasting this throughout the United States. Our guests today are, my right to left, Don Baer, who is the former assistant to the president and director of strategic planning and communications, President Bill Clinton is now the vice chair of the Burson Marsteller Company. Next to him is Ron Nesson, who is the former White House press secretary to President Gerald Ford and is now a journalist in residence at the Brookings Institution. On my left is Scott McClellan, former White House press secretary to President George W. Bush and the author of the bestseller memoir uh, and our moderator today will be Marvin Cal, the Edward R. Morrow Professor Emeritus at the Kennedy School at Harvard University, uh, and uh, the host of George Washington University's program, the Cal Report. Uh, Jody Powell, I regret to say, was to be with our panel, but got the flu. We wish he, of course, was the former press secretary to President Jimmy Carter. We wish him a speedy recovery. We hope he's watching at home on C-SPAN so he knows what he's missing today. Uh, so I will turn over uh, the program to our moderator, Marvin. Uh, and uh, after a while, he'll turn it over to questions from the audience as well, I suspect. Steve, thank you very much. Um, I would like to start with uh, two questions. One is very easy, and the other is a bit more challenging. The easy question um, flows from a comment that the uh, new White House spokesman, Robert Gibbs, starting January 21 of next year, said, quote, we ran promising a more open, transparent administration, and the president-elect will keep that promise. Number one, Don, do you think that he will, and in what way, if he does? Well, I think he will. Uh, and realizes quickly uh, 
that the pressures of decision making and sorry, the pressures of decision making uh, and uh, the responsibilities of government uh, are such that it's a lot harder than it looks like. Uh, it may be a lot harder than it should be, uh, but there are things that happen every day, and probably thousands of things that happen every day, that you just can't comfortably or carefully share with everyone in the country and the world. Now, having said that, I think there are some things they're already trying to do. Uh, they're using new media, online media, in different ways. You know, they've already uh, said that their radio address and shown that their radio address is going to be a weekly webcast. Uh, so there's some more, more openness associated with that, and the chance, presumably, for interactivity and for commentary from citizens and people who want to go online. So there are a lot of ways that I'm sure they're going to be more interactive and will try to be more open and transparent, but I think the jury is still out. Okay, Ron, your point of view. Well, I think uh, I think that's right to have as a goal. And I think it will survive until they get uh, into their first crisis where it'll be harmful in one way or the other to tell all the truth all the time. And then there'll be uh, some hedging and fudging and so forth. And I don't necessarily condemn that. Uh, you know, my... I came to the White House right after Nixon and the Watergate scandal. His press secretary was Ron Ziegler, and uh, then Jerry Ford, who had been vice president, succeeded uh, Nixon when he resigned. Uh, he picked as his press secretary Jerry Turkhorst, a very old friend from Michigan, uh, Washington bureau chief for the Detroit Daily News. And, and Turkhorst resigned a month after taking that job uh, to protest uh, the pardon by Ford of Nixon. So that's the atmosphere I stepped into. And uh, it didn't make life uh, very easy. Also, I think in those days, I probably uh, had a little shorter temper than I do now. Oh, oh yes, yes, yes. So maybe I didn't have the ideal personality for it. But the fact is, I said at my first briefing, and I meant that I will never knowingly lie, I will never knowingly cover up. And I think, by and large, I kept that promise, and I think most press secretaries keep that promise. But I think what I discovered was that you can't always, for a whole variety of reasons, you can't always tell all the truth uh, when the reporters necessarily want it. Maybe a week later, I can tell you what happened at that meeting decision was made, what we're going to do about, in those days, the Vietnam War was still going on. Uh, I, I think I didn't lie. I think most press secretaries understand that if they lie and are caught, their reputations are gone. They're totally useless in that job. But I did find the reality of it was, sometimes you can't tell everything you know when you first know it. Scott, you're most recently from the White House. In the Bush administration, do you feel um, that there was the same kind of, what's the word, open, transparent administration that President Bush perhaps wanted to have when he first came to office? No, I, mean, I think that this administration, it's, it's one of the criticisms I've had. We've been overly secretive and overly um, wanting to keep that information closely held. I think there's a balance you have to strike. I agree with Don and Ron's, both their comments and, and what they've made. Uh, and certainly all of us had a little bit of a shorter temper when we were at the White House. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, 
<laughs> it's, uh, it's when you deal with uh, however many reporters you have there a day, it, it, can, it can cause you to go that direction sometimes. But I agree that uh, I think that this administration really wants to meet that goal and that commitment. Um, and I think that they probably will do more than this administration has. But will it be marginal or will it be substantive? Uh, will it be a substantial difference for this you administration? Think? I think it's going to be a big challenge because you will face those moments when uh, when you come to a time when, you know, well, wait a second, we can't really share this much information for whatever reason it may be. Um, uh, and, and I think that's going to be a challenge to have to face because how does it fit in with controlling the message and staying disciplined in terms of trying to advance your agenda uh, by getting your message out there? It can interfere with that at times. And you may be able to come back at it at times, as Ron said, and say a week later, well, here's what happened. I couldn't tell you at this time because such and such was going on. Uh, but we'll see. I, I hope that they do fulfill that commitment. I think we've already seen, as Don pointed out, some of the examples with the new media, but also with the president-elect himself uh, being more accessible, holding a number of news conferences over a matter of days as he's announcing his cabinet mm -hmm. secretaries. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a good sign, um, but we have a long way to go to see whether or not they will meet that commitment. More accessible, but not necessarily more forthcoming. Right. And that's part of, if you will, the trick of it, which is to give access but also learn how to only give out as much as you feel you can or need to. And I just, I think it's important because we have people watching on television to be clear. It's not as though White Houses and White House uh, media staff want to hold in information for nefarious reasons. There may be national security considerations that, where, where lives are at stake. Uh, there may be uh, deals that are being cut with members of Congress for something that ultimately will be in the best interest of the country. Uh, but uh, you can put yourself in anyone's shoes and imagine, well, if you hear about it that day, even before the deal is completed, it's not going to make you very happy if you're still considering what the negotiations are. There are all kinds of reasons why. There's another reason, too, isn't there, Don? And that is that you, the press spokesman, don't necessarily know. Uh, and you may be very, it may be very much in the interests of others to keep you in the dark. And that you uh, become almost, very often almost a reporter yourself in the White House to find what is necessary and what you can tell. The interesting part, I'm sorry that Jody couldn't be here, because the unique part about Jody was that he was so close to the president that while he was not always the most popular press secretary by any means, uh, the press accepted that what he that he could speak on behalf of the president. Not every press secretary is that fortunate. Well, I think that is the absolute key to the job, and it's the, it's really the key question that anybody ought to ask who is considering taking that job, and that is, can I get my information firsthand? Can I attend all the meetings, listen to the debates, you know, get my information firsthand? Or do I have to go to somebody else on the staff and say, you know, I've been asked about X. What, what should I tell them? And that's when press secretaries get misled, and that's when they inadvertently mislead uh, the press. And I had that conversation with President Ford. I've been a White House correspondent, uh, so I knew something about the job, at least from the outside. And uh, I said, and he asked me if I'd be the press secretary, and I said, uh, I only have one condition, and that is I get my information firsthand. And he said, that's the only kind of press First secretary. Firsthand from the president himself. Or to sit there and listen to the meetings uh, and the discussions. Well, I would say that's one of the problems I talk about in, in my book that I wrote about was that I had very good access to the president. Each of the press secretaries under President Bush has had good access. Uh, I had a very unique relationship with the president because I followed him from Texas. We had a very close relationship. I had open access to the president. I could go on any time 
I interrupt any meeting that goes to him. But there were some limits on the press secretary in this administration in the sense that they weren't necessarily in the war council meetings or necessarily in some of the discussions when there might be three or four people in the room when the president's making the decision outside of the policy briefings or the world leader meetings that you would sit in. Um, and so that is a problem for a press secretary. You've got to have that, as Ron pointed out, unfettered access, be able to go into any meeting you so choose to go into at any time. Uh, it's something that Marlon Fitzwater talked about in his book uh, as well, and that's a question that Robert Gibbs should be asking up front. It, it appears that he has very good access uh, to this president, but will he be in the room every anytime he wants to be and in any meeting he wants to be, not just full access to the president? And, and okay. I get to, Don, I want to get to the second part of my question which you, uh, particularly Ron, has already addressed indirectly. And that is the question of lying. Now, no spokesman wants to be caught in a lie, and all spokesmen, I imagine, do not wish to lie. But do you believe, and I'll start with Scott, on the basis of what we all know about the incoming president, do you believe that he would turn to George Gibbs, is that his name? Robert Gibbs and say, we have this huge national security problem now. You know it because you've been in the room with me. Not going to make any sense for the American public to be filled in on this now, as Don was suggesting before. Maybe later, after the crisis passes. I know there are going to be questions about this. My question to you, how much can we not tell the public, how much should we simply flat out lie? Because it's in their interest not to know at this point. Don was saying that these problems come up and it's going to be in the long-term interest of the American people. But it is not in the long-term interest of the either the news person or the public. They want to know. Right. Well, with national security issues, you have unique situations sometimes. You've got to make sure you're not compromising operations or sources or anything of that yeah, nature. But, but don't want to do that either. No, they don't. I agree. I agree. And most of them are very careful about right. it. Of course, in this day and age, with how many media outlets are, you can't trust everyone in that, in that regard. But the traditional media absolutely <coughs> wants to make sure they don't compromise anything. But you should, you should never lie, as, as Ron pointed out. And of course, I got into a situation uh, myself where I passed along uh, false information unknowingly. Um, and it later came back to hurt me when it uh, became revealed that what I had said from the podium uh, even though I gave a little bit of an out to myself, I said these individuals assured me they were not involved in the leaking of classified information, specifically Valerie Plain's identity. Um, it later turned out that they had been involved uh, to some to a varying degree. Uh, but uh, you've got to you've got to uh, make sure that you're providing accurate information. Um, otherwise, it will come back to bite you, particularly in this day and age when there's so many people out there, so many sources that the media can go to. You're not going to be able to hide anything uh, in the long run, and it serves you better to make sure. But it, you know, it's, it's a question of how much of that information do you share and when do you share it. There are situations like that that you always have to deal with. But Don, if a reporter, with all of the best, the best intentions in the world, but if a reporter comes right at you and says, I have found out X, B, and D, is that right? You have a responsibility then, if you claim you're never going to lie, not to lie. So what do you do? Well, A, I think it's correct. You should never lie. Never be put in a position where you unknowingly lie, which has happened to press secretary. It's easy for me to opine on this because, of course, unlike uh, my colleagues, I never was the spokesperson for the administration. I was the director. People would occasionally call you, I understand. Well, people call, of course, but I've also, I was.
was the, the category before that where I was director of speechwriting, chief speechwriter, who were kept even more in the dark than the press people. But, uh, so I know what it means to be kept in the dark and not really what's going on, know, knowing what's going on. Look, it has happened more than once in the history, especially of the modern national security state, where uh, White House press people and even presidents have had to appeal to established media, mainstream media, as they now know, to withhold information from the public because of national security considerations. You know about these very well. These are very historic uh, instances. Um, it happens, I suspect, a lot more often than most people realize. Even some of us who work in the White House and are fairly well aware of what's going on don't know all the times when that has had to be invoked. The problem, one of the real problems with that, which Scott alluded to, is that what we call the media now has expanded so vastly and dramatically that, that holding in that information that really could lead to the loss of life, not just individual life, but on a massive scale, uh, becomes a much more difficult moral question. So what you're saying is that there may be circumstances where even if you don't want to lie, you may be put in a position where you have to. Have you ever, you know, been, Ron, have you ever been in that? One of our colleagues called it telling the truth slowly. And the question <laughs> is, you know, how do you actually let out enough information so that uh, people are kind of kept in, in the know, but you're not actually putting out anything? I mean, there are times when you just simply cannot answer a question, and mostly for national security reasons. I don't think political embarrassment is a, you know, is a, is a proper excuse, but there are times when you just can't answer that question because it's going to put lives at stake or operations in danger. But you can't lie either because you're going to be found out. You know, I don't know how people always find out when you're lying in Washington, but they do. And then your credibility is gone and you're useless as a spoken. So you, you need to answer the question honestly and say, I can't talk about that. But the president now. told you before you went out that you can't talk about that issue. Right. And, and so what do you say? I can't answer the question. I can't talk about that issue right now. I can't talk about that. But I, I say that you're questions. already acknowledging Absolutely. that Absolutely. Of course. Of course. But, but I didn't lie. You not but I didn't lie. I didn't lie. You know that the reporters know I know. And they know they're going to eventually find out. But I didn't lie. I said, I can't answer that question right now. That would have been fun. To yeah. it, it, it is very easy for administrations to, and each one has to face, face this challenge, when it goes into something that's politically embarrassing. Well, then they have to address, do we want to share this information? The president may be reluctant to share it. Other members of the administration may be reluctant to share it and for different reasons. Uh, some of it may be personal. Some of it may be policy. Uh, certainly in our administration, with the Valerie Plain leak episode, I look back on that, and I think a lot of that was not wanting to share information because it was politically embarrassing, not just because it was a criminal investigation, even though that's what I believed at the time. And, and so I think you have to look at that side of things, too. I think that comes into the equation when we're having this discussion as well. By the way, was that the only time that you found post facto that you had lied? Um, well, I, there's a, everything I, I said from the podium, and I think this is the case with every press secretary, you know, you view it as sincere. There are things you look back on. I look back on and reflected upon, and I view that some of them were misguided now. Uh, for instance, uh, one of the things that I learned, and one of the reasons I became disillusioned just before I left, uh, or increasingly disillusioned, was when we had talked about uh, how serious the president was about making sure that 
selective leaking of classified information was not tolerated and that it was pursued to the fullest extent. Well, I learned just before I left the White House uh, from the President himself uh, that he had authorized the disclosure of um, parts of the National Intelligence Estimate to defend against some of the criticism that we had uh, misled the, the nation when it came to uh, Iraq seeking uranium from Niger. And then we officially declassified it a few weeks later, but this was given to the Vice President and it later led to Scooter Libby sharing some of that information. And here I had been out there speaking for two years saying the President takes it very seriously and we were doing it ourselves. And uh, that was tough for me to handle when I heard it directly from the President uh, that he had actually authorized that information to be leaked and that, that's a problem. Uh, and it was a problem for the President because the President had been out there saying it as well and the press rightfully uh, criticized us for a way it isn't this hypocritical. You were criticized. So I, I don't know if that's, uh, you know, I don't know if you want to view that as lying or because I thought it was sincere and I believed the president at the time, but when it came to uh, his own ability to do it, he felt it was necessary to do. Well, this is one, one of the hearing, Marvin, I think is there is a little bit of difference in the way you handle difficult political or domestic questions and the way you handle uh, foreign policy, national security questions. And, you know, when I was in the White House, the Vietnam War was still going on, the American merchant ship was captured on the high seas, and, and there were a lot of other international, you know, Che Guevara was running around Latin America. You know, there was a lot of, and there's a difference between the way you do that. And I had the further complication of having Henry Kissinger as the national security advisor, and Henry wanted to be his own press secretary. You know? He was. And he was, absolutely. <laughs> But uh, I think you want to make that distinction that, uh, you know, if, if you screw up on a domestic question or a uh, political question, there's a lot of embarrassment and so forth. You screw up on a foreign policy question, you can get, you can get everybody into a war, you know. So there is a difference in the way you handle those. So does that justify that very last point that you made? Does that justify misleading the public? No. No. And that's why I say... The answer is, I can't talk about that right now. Okay. And, and, John, and, and, you're in the Be careful about where you're going with well, this. Well, you can give people guidance. guidance. If they're off on the wrong track, you ought to give them guidance. Right. Well, there was a spokesman at the State Department named Bob McCluskey, who was one of the best spokesmen I've ever dealt with. And I remember going to him once with a question. And he would say, You're a good reporter, Marvin. I'm so puzzled that you would ask me a question like that, which would be his way of saying, stay away from that. I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, he also would say, you don't want to get pregnant on that. That was his favorite line. You don't want to get pregnant. Take it down. And compared to the ways you would want to get pregnant. <laughs> Jim Haggerty, who was Eisenhower's press secretary, told the story about going in to see the president. The president told him, I want you to say so-and-so and so-and-so. Haggerty said, Mr. President, if I say that, the reporters are going to skin me alive. The president got up from his desk, walked around, patted Jim on the back and said, Jim, better you than me. <laughs> I want to uh, raise another issue which has to do with news conferences and the value of news conferences. And I read on a website recently that Obama, because he's so absorbed in this new technology, may feel that a news conference is really a 20th century relic. But I remember toward the tail end of the 20th century, up at the Shorenstein Center, we did a study 
on the value of a news conference, not only to a president, but to the entire bureaucracy, the entire administration. That if our proposal was that we have regular press conferences. And the idea was the president can make up his own mind. He can do it every week, he can do it every two weeks, but a regular press conference, noon, not in prime time. And have it every two weeks, and one of the great advantages would be that people in the administration would know that the press conference is coming up. They would therefore know that a question might be asked about their area of specialization. So they had to get up to speed on that. They had to provide the president with information about that. So it's a way of infusing the entire government with some excitement about a press conference. Now, Margaret does something else as well. Anybody who's been in the inside knows, at least the White House staff that I was on, when the president is going to give a press conference, he's given material. Yep. He has to study the material. He often annotates the material. It's actually an educational experience for the president who exactly. may not know many of the things that's going on out there in the bureaucracy. Right, absolutely. And it seems to me there are many advantages to a regular, regularly scheduled press conference. So, what can we expect in an Obama administration, Tom? Um, I agree with all of those advantages, and there are even others. I mean, it's a disciplining tool from the standpoint of policymaking. I mean, uh, you know, there's great mystery about how policy is made and what happens. Well, the truth of the matter is, uh, policy comes into being often because there are public statements about to be made, whether it's a major speech or a press conference where something may come up. It's also a way, frankly, to discipline and drive your policy apparatus and your entire government towards results because they all want presidents to exactly. sort of announce their results. Exactly. We, it's not enough just to wait until the State of the Union every day, every year, where they're all lobbying to get things into that speech. So I think it's a it's a very good tool for governing. Um, uh, I think they will have a lot of press conferences and probably will make them somewhat more routine. I mean, if, if this transition, which I believe has gone uh, wonderfully, I mean, in a masterly way, they've managed uh, uh, the media and communicating uh, in, a, in a consistent and persistent way, uh, and I suspect this will be a model that they will. They Do you think, Ron, that that is the case? That well, would likely be the case. I think you're closer to reality when you talk about the news conference as a 20th century. Uh, you were. Yeah, I think they will continue to have them. They should continue to have them. But I think, uh, you know, I think uh, Obama has been doing blogging and so forth, and more and more people are getting their information that way. The other thing about news conferences are. The White House always has ways of getting their story out, their information out. The news conference, and especially, don't forget, when I was in the White House, you couldn't televise uh, uh, the daily briefing. And uh, not all the press conferences were televised. And what has happened when they're now on C-SPAN and all the other all-news channels is they have become little dramas. And report, look, I come from a really older generation of reporters, you know, and, and I believe you ask a question at a news conference to get information for which to write a story, you know, who, what, where, why, and when kind of information. But now here's how the questions are at news conferences. Mr. President, do you mean to tell us that you really believe that, you know? Are you honestly going to take this country, blah, blah, blah? That, this, the questions are, so many of them are accusatory, that I don't think they, and for that reason, I don't think that they
produce as much of the kind of information that you're talking about. I think that gets out now in other ways. Scott, press conference, what do you think? Well, it sounds like the President-elect Obama wants to do it once a month. I mean, we'll see if he can stick to that schedule, if not more. Um, what is that once a month? Did you know something we don't know? Well, I think that's what they, I think that's what they, they said. They announced that? Yeah. Well, I, I think they haven't officially announced it, but they've put it out that they would like to do it at least once a month. And that, really? Okay. That, that would be fairly frequent. Uh, I mean, this administration, I think we did it about once every three or four months when I first came in. When I became press secretary, we condensed that down to about once every two months. Um, but he did do a lot of media availabilities as well. But I think, I mean, it's good for the president. It's good for the press, obviously, but it's also good for the president to do these uh, for reasons that you stated and for the administration itself and the, and the way it uh, helps kind of get some of that policy moving and going. Um, uh, so, but, you know, it, it, every administration is going to have to face difficult moments. Some of those difficult moments are going to be major controversies that could potentially turn into scandal. And when that happens, what is the president-elect, what is he going to do once he's in office? Because then you're going to have to face decisions. You want to be putting the president out there in the middle of something so controversial to have to deal with all these issues and be put on the defensive. Um, you know, I would I always argue for more openness and more transparency and more press conferences uh, because I think it's the right thing to do. But uh, each administration is going to have to deal with those you issues. You know, I'm not raising the issue of more so much as I am about the issue of regularity. Right. That if the government knows and the president knows and the public knows that every couple of weeks they're going to get a shot at the president. They're going to act, be able to ask him a question. He's going to have to answer that question. And let's say there is a scandal or a building scandal. Wouldn't it be even in the president's interest, unless he's at the heart of the scandal, <laughs> to, to be able to get this stuff out? So my sense is, however, um, yes, yes. But that regularity here is more central than more. It isn't an idea of we could do it twice a week. You know, what's interesting, in the history of the press conference with presidents, if you go back to Franklin Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt would have one or two press conferences in his office every week. And that as you got deeper into it, and as you got up to, say, George W. Bush, you would find that the press conference was no longer that regular an event, because it was a, picking up Ron's point, it was a televised event. And television itself has a way of transforming something which should be undramatic but informative into something that is a play. Well, there's back to a point of Ron's as well. White Houses are looking for ways to get their story out and to get their message out and the policy that they're hoping to advance. That's what it's all about. Uh, they hope that by doing that, they're going to move the public in their direction and maintain public support and be doing the right things for the country. Press conferences are one means, they happen to be a flawed means of doing that. Why? Because there's an intermediary, the press. Uh, and quite often, especially in the media age that we're living in now, the media or the press themselves want to be the story, or part of the story. Uh, you know, there's a fair amount of, you're both making this generalization as though it's a fact. I challenge that. I'm not sure that most reporters today are on stage when they ask the president a question. I think, I think there's a lot of preening and careerism, and, and, and uh, it, there's, there's a lot that advances a career by being able, not necessarily to take the president on, but certainly to be on stage there. But that's the project one's presence. That's so the advantage of the problem of television. Well, uh, because there are other ways to use television. 
including Oval Office addresses, uh, speeches to the nation that are not necessarily from the Oval Office, but major addresses the President gives from any, from George Washington University, where, uh, where he's, any place, where he's, he's making a statement. But then he's, he's not being care. challenged. Yeah, but Mark, well, I mean, the whole point, he's not challenged. Yeah, but, but, but this is your proposal for press conferences. The President gives press conferences as one of his tools, as long as it's in his interest. It's that simple. And he loves to do it if he's good at it. Some presidents are better than others. And he'll do it until, as I, I guess Ron was the one who pointed out, uh, until there's something he can't talk about, doesn't want it. He knows that's going to come up. And that stops it like a guillotine in that way. Now, uh, this why, president... And that's why no, this president and no president is going to say, yes, I'm going to have a news conference every 14 days. You'll never get them to say that for this they, reason. They'll, they'll do, they don't have to do it. Because that, that's Marvin's yeah. proposal. Well, they'll do it as long as it's in their interest. In the Because I put out the book, in the beginning of administration, it is in their interest. And they will do it while they're creating policy, while they have the goodwill, and so forth. Now look at this president. <coughs> this president was not around for press conference and others, but he was running for office. He was, he was a, a transparency was not the, his middle name. You're talking about Obama. I'm talking about Obama. Since he's, he has been the, the president-elect for less than a month, and he has had five press conferences. Why? It's, a, it's exactly the way to sell his message. He does it brilliantly. He does it first with, with the uh, economic team. He moves on to the, to the today, uh, to the national security team. Uh, there is no, no question, and he's going to be good in it anyway. As long as it's in his interest, as he's already shown, and the contrast is already very clear between Obama the candidate and Obama the president. What about the interest of the American people? Let's go on to another question. No, I, th I find it, I'm very serious about that. I think that we've gone through a period of time in the history of this country where a little transparency ought to have meaning and significance and not be a tool of governance, a way of avoiding issues rather than addressing issues. At what point does a democracy become transparent? Well, this will sound cynical to your ears, but I mean it in the most idealistic way. The question is, is the American public best served by transparency for transparency's sake, or by the use of various communications tools to demonstrate effectiveness in the office, and to actually be performing and doing the job in a way that works best for the American public? They aren't necessarily the same. And that's really, it goes to, uh, to Steve's point. The president will use these tools uh, as he or she believes works best uh, for their purposes. Uh, hopefully, we hope that they're using them because they are really aimed at doing the job to the best way. the tools? You, you, you more than anybody else on this platform have looked through into the new media. Here's a president who so who 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 created the new media in the campaign sense more than anybody else. In other words, every president uses the new technology at hand. Roosevelt used radio, uh, Kennedy used uh, television, Reagan used talk radio, uh, Clinton used cable. We have, we have the, the internet president. What does that mean now in terms of will there be 
more interaction with the mainstream media, those sitting in front of them? Will those sitting in front of them be more often to be bloggers than they are now? What indeed are we moving into, as you see it, in this tele internet age with an internet president? We're moving into chaos, uh, and that's a real problem. Uh, I'm sure that this White House will experiment, it already is, as we've said, and will do many different things. The president may blog, uh, there, there are other people within the administration may be doing things like that. There will be webcasts, there will be opportunities for interactive chats and, and the like. By the way, I did the first interactive live online chat from the West Wing in history when MSNBC launched in, uh, I guess, 1996, I guess it was. Uh, and I, I did it only because no one else was around and wanted to do it, so I was the guy left around to do it. But I, I think that... Uh, uh, the, the, there's a real challenge. I think there's a real challenge and risk with this, which is to cheapen the, the communication from the presidency. And one of the things you see President-elect Obama doing is that he's using those press conferences to reinforce his presidentialness uh, and the dignity that surrounds the office. Uh, and there are some real risks of familiarity and too much. Uh, which certainly online, we all know, any of us who deals with these things, uh, there's a cheapening of uh, that effect. It's not to say it's bad. Uh, in some respects, it's great because there's a lot more information that is shared, uh, to your point, and the American public has access to much more. But I do think it's, there's, a, there's a balance there that we're going to have to find. But, Marvin, you have to understand the importance and the huge boundary that has been crossed by online communications. Now, you and I and everybody on this stage came up in a time where you could not get a story in the newspaper, on a wire service, on television or radio, unless it went through an editor. And I've had editors, and you have too. Look at your copy, Nate. How do you know that? How do you know that? How do you know that? And that was one of the great early lessons I learned in journalism. Your copy could not get out where people could read it or hear it or watch it unless it went through a final edit, right? Now, Anybody with access to a computer can write anything they want to. They hit a button, and it goes out to 5 billion people everywhere in the world. Now, that is a huge difference that goes way beyond the kind of politics that we're talking about, and, or daily communications and so forth. You know, Barack Obama can sit in the Oval Office and send a message out to the entire world. And no reporter has any chance to you know, parse it, put it, put it in background information, put it in context or anything else. And that's that is a tremendous change. That is the way he announced, as I remember, his vice president. It was on the, uh, on the internet. But does that mean that we are now possibly, I've certainly read this on various websites, that we, looking at what Obama has done during the campaign and projecting ahead as to what he may do as president, that he is creating a post-party type of politics. That you're, that, that what I read is that he's got a database now of something like 10 million people. And that he could use that database as a way of leapfrogging Congress, uh, the press, the annoying press that's always there to ask questions, um, so that is, that poses a phenomenally important question. 
Are we dealing with, in fact, through the use of the internet, a different type of governance? What would be your guess? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the blogosphere has a huge impact on, uh, particularly when you're talking about major issues of the day. And, and uh, you know, look at look at this administration right here. Uh, the blogosphere was responsible for beginning the process that led to uh, uncovering the National Guard documents being uh, forged uh, during uh, uh, the 2004 re-election. And uh, that started with bloggers. Uh, and I'll, I'll say that uh, during my time as press secretary, I was the first one to allow actually a few bloggers into the briefing room. Now, they were considered news bloggers, not just some blogger off the street. Uh, but that was a new step, uh, step forward. And I, I think you do have to be careful about going down that direction uh, to some extent. Uh, and, and I would also go back to one thing on transparency. That the benefit of transparency is when that pendulum swings too far to the secrecy and withholding information, then you lose accountability. When it's swinging more towards the transparency side, you have built-in accountability because you can't hide things, you can't keep things from the public, and people are going to be held accountable for their actions and for what they're doing. There's another aspect, you know, the other aspect. We're talking about the build-up of the Internet, but we also have to talk about the decline of the mainstream media, particularly yes. as it relates to print. In other words, in my book, there is a two-page that shows the White House briefing room. It was the people that Scott looked at it, and each seat took. Now, I have to, if I went back only two months after I wrote the book, I'd have to start going X, X, X. X the, the San Diego Union isn't there anymore. X, X. Hearst isn't there anymore. X, X. And so forth. So you've got something that looks very, that increasingly looks very different. Now, what may happen? In part, made the, the incredible interest, at least initially, in Barack Obama may may increase that again. The Washington Post, for example, is going to four reporters and two. So there is a little counter thing, at least initially. I don't know how long that'll last, but that's a trend that's very, very serious. But is it, is most news organizations now are not increasing the number of reporters? Every day I read stories about news organizations firing yeah, 10, 20, 30 percent of their reporting staff. And if you, if you limit, I go back to my regular press conference, if you limit access, think that it's all going to happen by way of the web, and at the same time there are fewer reporters to ask the questions and to do the digging, it could very well be that you have, I'm not talking now, about Obama, I'm talking about power, big power in the United States, unchecked. Where is the accountability? Now, the argument may be the accountability is in literally the number of websites that are out there that could raise a fuss, right? So they raised a fuss on Dan Rather's story. I'm sorry? The citizen journalist, the one at home. On the citizen journalist, right. That's another great, one of those great expressions. Which I, unlike the journalists who aren't citizens. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Right. Yeah, but so you know, I should say so-called The so-called journalists. So-called so journalists and so-called citizens. We are, we are at that point, by the way, where I think maybe we ought to ask people if they have questions. Uh, you're more than welcome to come and ask them. Now, how will I know that? You raise your hand. And is there a microphone somewhere? There is. Well, here's one and there's one up here. There's somebody right here in the front who has a question. And is that the way we're going to do it, with microphones running around? Yes. Okay, why don't you come up front here, please? I want to identify yourself, too. Tell us. Okay. Okay. 
My name is Karen Casaro, and I live in Rocky Bottom, in the neighborhood of the White House. What I'd like to know is to what extent is speculation considered news? Uh, well, I could talk to you about an hour on that one. That goes really... Go ahead, everyone. I think this goes, that question goes to the, this discussion we've just been having about the power of the Internet, the changes that Internet has brought about. And, uh, and also, I think, uh, I think that has changed what's left of the mainstream media. Uh, their standards have been lowered, I think, in a way to compete with the, uh, with the blogosphere. And I saw a story in the Washington Post, no less, attributed to unnamed sources reporting anonymously on the internet or something like that. And this was the this was the um, this was the attribution given. I think uh, you know I, I just think that uh, that the internet has changed everything, in, including this area. She's talking about. I, I just don't, I don't disagree with that, but I also think we would be fooling ourselves in the public to say that the standards were always so much loftier and higher and that speculation did not amount to, quote, news or at least uh, coverage. Um, and I think every one of us could point to examples that we know of where pure speculation and gossip formed the basis for things that were published in very important mainstream publications without real source. And once published, what effect does the publication itself have upon the process of building a policy? Sometimes this isn't about policy as much as it is personnel and personalities, which does form the basis of a lot of coverage in the modern era, probably going back to uh, at least the time of Gary Hart and, and uh, his situation, but I think others as well. Uh, and I don't just mean those kinds of situations. I just, in general, there's a lot of speculation and gossip coverage, which, by the way, is fun and interesting to watch, especially if you're living in a world like the one we live in here in Washington, where who the players are and are not is an important game to be watched every day. But uh, in terms of policy, um, it can have an effect. I mean, tip, it, it can, and there, there are probably great examples that if we thought about it, we could cite, where certain policies that perhaps were being pursued once speculation was, was in the press about them had to be walked away from because you couldn't go forward. It's really part of the name of the game in Washington. If you want to call it speculation, you, you, you can. Uh, but it's playing a, a very compli complicated policy game or personnel game through the media. It didn't have to be the internet at all. It's always been done. It's a question of leak. It's a question of why people leak and the purposes of it. Sometimes you leak to, to try to block somebody else's program. Sometimes you, so sometimes you leak for policy reasons. Other times, more often than not, uh, the Pentagon Papers would be a perfect example of a very important leak that they had, had an effect going up to the Supreme Court. In other cases, it's pure ego. These people play this game. In Washington, it's fun to play. We're all, we're all players. The problem is, in the White House, uh, these things magnify uh, the, the amount of time spent talking and worrying about leaks is all out of proportion to the importance of the leak. And then some things, awful things can happen. Then they say, how did we get that? Where did that leak come from? 
At that point, you can get into questions of lie detector tests and otherwise, and it, and, and it gets, can get very vicious, and there are cases uh, of that in the past. Well, one other thing about leaks, excuse me just a second, and one other thing about leaks is, you're right, those are the only three reasons why people leak. But to me, a lot of times you see stories in the paper or on broadcast media based on leaked information. And a lot of times it's kind of interesting, but you know, relatively minor stuff. To me, the real story often, and it never gets covered, is almost never gets covered, is who leaked and why did they leak. And that's sometimes the much more interesting story than whatever little tidbit got leaked. But you never see that because you have to protect your sources. Yeah, sometimes it's more important as well. I just want to add one other variation of the leak, which does kind of go to your point about ego. There are plenty of people who leak because they're trying to keep the press, the reporters, from bothering them or writing things about them that might be derogatory or negative. And so they become well-known as leakers and cooperators with the press uh, in a way that advantages their own careers. Uh, and that that's, uh, yeah, it happens a lot. fuels the speculation. And in this 24-7 media environment, uh, you see that the speculation is much more prominent. I mean, it's always been there, but it's much more prominent because you have to feed the media beast, uh, constantly. And, and you did talk about the reasons for it. The other issue that this goes to here is the use of anonymous sources, which is something that the media always grapples with and how they source it. If they're going to use anonymous sources, uh, uh, you know, New York Times is always, I know, internally battling over this. How exactly will they source it? There are only certain ways that they'll source that anonymous source to make sure that it builds credibility in the story. Because if some, if some reader reads that story and sees an anonymous source, uh, they're going to question the credibility of the story itself. And so the media is hesitant about using anonymous sources unless they absolutely have to. Well, how do you three insiders feel about anonymous sources? Well, they certainly cause us all a lot of problems probably at times. Uh, trying to respond to anonymous sources is very difficult at times. You're, you're sure not more often than not that they're your people? Um, it, 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 you know, you talk to enough people in administration. I mean, they're certainly they're certainly going to find some people that are willing to to give the reporter what they're looking for in their story, and uh, you know they don't want it attributable. Uh, you know, I, I, in terms of coming from the press office, uh, I was very hesitant to ever do that. Uh, I wanted to make sure everything was on the record. Now, there were times though that I certainly, and, and I think any press secretary is going to try to help steer a reporter in a certain direction and not be quoted on the story, um, be as helpful as they can. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that's, is that the question you're getting to there? So you're the anonymous source. Well, I, I, I'm rarely, I think I would be, because we're all, we're obviously out there on the record uh, most well, of the time. Well, a lot of times the anonymous uh, leaker is the president himself. <laughs> and uh, I had a, 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 a... Or the vice president. Or the vice president. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, Yeah. vice president. President Ford had a series of sort of get acquainted dinners with the Washington Press Corps because he, you know, had come up rather quickly. And uh, one of these dinners was with the New York Times. And the ground rules were it was to get acquainted, you know, for him to go to acquainted with reporters and then to get acquainted with him because he was new. So he is uh, uh, telling a story about, uh, uh, I guess, I'm trying to think of what the story was, but. Uh, in any case, uh, it was uh, something that it, it just didn't seem possible that you know this could occur. And uh, I got to think of what what exactly. Well, you think about what that is because the the story that I remember is I, that Ford. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
that Ford said something, I think, concerning the Soviet Union? He, no, he, he, they were, there was a dinner with the New York Times. Right. And he said, and, uh, and he said, uh, and this report had just come out, the CIA, you know, investigation of, of all the bad things the CIA had done. And uh, somebody asked Ford about it at the dinner, and uh, they said, gee, this was terrible. And he said, well, you think that's bad? You ought to hear what else they did. And, uh, and Ford said, like, what? And said, well, like, assassinating people, <laughs> right? So uh, this, was, this was what Ford had to say. And uh, he told, but the, the New York Times now knew about it, but they couldn't use it. Do you know what and happened? And a week later, yeah, you want to tell what happened? No, no, you I'll tell you what happened. A week later, I could. a week later, Dan Shore ran with yes. the story. Because, although the New York Times was not allowed to publicize what they had heard the president had say, mm -hmm. but, uh, but they could tell Dan Shore about it. Well, and, it, was and he was friend, at the, it was a friend of Dan's who was at the dinner. Yeah, that's correct. And the friend of Dan's was telling Dan afterward all about what this new president said. Yeah. And he included the idea of assassination. Right. And Dan said, ooh, that's quite a story. Can I use it? The guy said, well, you were not there at the dinner. So we used it, which is another way of saying that all of this stuff about, you know, controlling the news, and you're going to come upon a time when you can't really control it anymore. Then throw in the Internet, and it becomes almost impossible. I would like to ask a question here. Of, of all of you, including Steve. Steve made the point a little while ago about how Obama, in this period of transition, has already had five news conferences. And you put it in a very positive way. This is the way he controls his message and all of that. What have we learned in watching those five news conferences about the new president's attitude toward the media, toward the flow of information, toward the control of that flow, what do you think we've learned, Don? One of the things I've noticed, this may sound small, that I think we have learned is he actually doesn't know the reporters that well. Because he's always referring to the chart that he's given. And of course, he was not close to these reporters during the campaign. They, as you pointed out, really they kept him away from them and, and wasn't, didn't serve his purpose. Um, that's a small thing, but I think we've learned that. Whether or not that hurts him or helps him over time, I don't know. Um, I, I think, look, I think more than anything we've learned what we already knew about him, it's reinforced the fact that he is a very disciplined politician who understands the power of message and the need to control your message uh, and to let it flow out uh, in a very disciplined way. Can I really? change it a little bit? I don't want to change it. No, no, let me, let me get in on this. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Well, Mr. Green, Answer. I want the... I want the... <laughs> you want the microphone. Does it, and I, I address this, I address this to, since this guy particularly, does it make any difference that you're nice to reporters? Does it make any difference that you have funny nicknames for them, that you invite them up to the, to the residence? What, this is something that goes on with each presidency. I mean, I, I saw it with Nixon and otherwise. You're, you're supposed to be friendly and agreeable and you and, and does it ultimately make any marginal difference. difference. I mean, I, I think that, you know, and someone said that the, you know, that the press is not your friend, but they're not your enemy either. Mm -hmm. And too many uh, times people look at the press as the enemy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, they help get your message out. They help get your, uh, what you want to say out to the public. 
Um, but at the same time, I mean, Ron talked about it. We, we did some of that with this president where we brought reporters in off the record just to get to know the president so he would know them by their first name. All the ones covering the White House, we did it in different groups where we'd keep it pretty small, you know, seven, eight, nine uh, in one setting in the Oval Office or even over in the residence at times. Uh, it's interesting to see how full circle this has come. The New York Times uh, at some point said, well, we're not going to participate in this because it's off the record. And we think it should be on the record anytime you're talking to the President of the United States. Now, of course, anytime reporters went out to the South Lawn and said, uh, someone familiar with the President's thinking, you knew where it was coming from. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, no, back to your question, uh, your, uh, your question was? No, or you've answered my question. Now you can answer Margaret's question. What yeah. have you learned well, about, uh, about Obama from his five presidents? What, what Don was saying, that it's a very disciplined operation. They very much want to control that message. You go to the point is how long will that last? I mean, we're in the initial stages right now where he's going to have a honeymoon period. He's going to roll out these announcements. He's going to be able to, to uh, get his message out a lot more cleanly than uh, he probably will later on. Well, the thing that occurred to me watching these five, and I enjoyed it very much. I really thought it was a terrific experience. He didn't know the reporters, and he called their names. Today, he specifically called the reporter who then stood up to ask the question. So it was... Oh, yeah. That's right. But, but sure at the same time, provided by his uh, communications, he was calling, calling the caller. He was calling the reporter. So to that extent, it was his decision which reporter was going to ask a question. Also, the way he, I thought, rather abruptly ended the news conference today. He, a reporter finished a question. He finished the answer, and he said, "That's it." And he began to move everybody off. And it's always that, the that, president. Who, now, when he when he learns the reporters and you see them all waving, he picks that one. He picks that one. He knows that that woman with the funny hat from Maine is always going to change the subject. This is we know that her name is May Craig and so forth. So he knows that he gets in trouble. And there's that that Indian correspondent who's going to always ask the question about what what are you doing about Pakistan? And so so that's exactly what every president does. The important thing about why a president should have more press conferences is the degree to which a president actually controls a press conference. And a president is initially a little fearful of this, or sometimes lazy. I don't think Reagan really wanted to do that much homework and so forth. But when you figure that they can give an opening statement, that they know who to call on, that occasionally maybe you guys even plant something with somebody. If you ask a question about... Uh, uh, about Tangiers, you may get an interesting answer, and so forth and so on. And if they get that comfortable with the press conference, maybe Marvin will actually propose, take, move to the, to the Cal proposal. Maybe. One of the things he's going to learn about press conferences and so forth is, and just dealing more generally with the press, is that another rule of Washington, whoever the press first build up, they then tear down. Which means that will he have, since the press during this campaign was reported to have had a very cozy relationship with candidate Obama, what happens with President Obama? Are they going to give him a long stretch of time, or are they going to come at him rather brusquely? You mean, has he already had his honeymoon as the honeymoon over before he is inaugurated? Um, I think there's beginning to be some self-examination among reporters about why were, did they go so easy on Obama, why didn't they ask harder questions, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there will be some, at least, who will come out of the box needing to prove their manhood or womanhood. And, uh, uh, and I don't know how
but it will be over and he'll get the same kind of questions. That what happens, of course, is that the president wants a good, good stories. Good stories to a president means favorable stories. Good pre press, what do they want? They want good stories too. But good stories to them don't mean favorable stories. They mean, they? Interesting, they mean interesting stories. They mean controversial stories. They mean news. Okay. Initially, those two definitions of, of, of what is a good story are the same. Because everything the president-elect now says is news and interesting to them. At some point, it starts to separate. It's no longer, what's a good story to the media is no longer a good story to the president and vice versa. This is what, this is what happens, yeah. Well, there's a, there's a cynical rule in Washington that good news is no news. And <laughs> I think uh, Obama will run into that uh, pretty soon. Questions? Right up front here. My name's Andrew Feldman. I'm a political communications manager here in the School of Media and Public Affairs. The question is, uh, throughout the past administration, we have seen a number of different secretaries. Scott, you're the second press secretary of now four uh, in this administration. Why is there such a changeover in press, uh, press secretaries throughout a president's administration? Well, I think particularly in this day and age, it, it, it's needed. You need change in all those high-level positions like that. The intensity, the pressures of the job is 24-7. It's good to have periodic changeover. I served for almost three years uh, longer than anyone else has served in that position as, as president. Uh, the Clinton administration had four, um, I believe, as well. And I, I think it's just the, the, the pressure of the job. It's also good for the president to be bringing in uh, new faces uh, every so often. I, I think probably when I went into it, I said two years is going to be the maximum I served as press secretary. I served two and a half before that as the principal deputy press secretary. Um, but, you know, turnover is good, uh, particularly in this day and age for a president in you know, any senior level position. Um, but uh, particularly the demands in this 24-7 news environment and where everything's uh, in front of the cameras, uh, I think it's, it's also needed to keep your sanity to, to know when to leave at the right point. Does the president... Um, lose trust in a spokesman. The spokesman not doing a bad job at all, but just the idea that you're there passing on all of these annoying questions um, that suggest all kinds of problems, and you're the guy bringing it to the box. Right. Well, yeah, it certainly, it, and you certainly got uh, a lot of amusing reactions out of the president when you would bring up some of the questions that the press corps is going to ask that morning or that afternoon. Uh, uh, but uh, in my situation, no, it was not a problem because we had that established relationship going back to Texas. So, well, I, maybe never it is now. <laughs> I never heard this from the president, but I heard it from other people on the White House staff. Uh, why can't you make the press do yes. why, You know, Why can't you get them to write this story? Well, why couldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> because of people like you. <laughs> yes, right here, please. In the front. Hi, my name is Cece Gray, and I'm a grad student here also at GSPM. Um, my question is on the press office itself. Can you explain to me how the press office is organized and also the relationship with the communications staff? Excellent, thank you. Uh, Ron, what, Udon, uh, go first. Well, I can't. I mean, the press offices are organized in different ways for different administrations. I suspect this one will be organized even differently because of uh, the proliferation of digital media and online media and whatnot, which will require a whole different set of controls, although, Scott, presumably you all had to deal with that, too. Um, the, the relationship with the communications office uh, or offices is one that is uh, constantly changing and evolving. 
there has only been an office of White House Communications, I think, since the Nixon administration, when Herb Klein was the first. Uh, it's a misunderstood <coughs> job, uh, even within the White House. Uh, it's more of a, if you will, strategy job. It's more of a behind-the-scenes role where there are people plotting and planning out what the public face of a presidency is going to be, sometimes over the course of months, if not a whole year and longer. Uh, not that those, you know, I think Winston Churchill said, uh, uh, plan is nothing, planning is everything. So, I mean, the, the, the whole idea is to be planning and developing and seeing where you're going to go with regard to policies and announcements and uh, the uses of the president's precious time from the standpoint of public presentation recognizing that uh, events are most often in the saddle when it comes to the White House and the presidency and things will change. Um, uh, that job means that uh, you're looking at all the different tools and arms and legs for projecting what the presidency is about to the country, to the world. Uh, the press, as much as this may hurt them to hear it, is only one part of that projection. Doing things, working with the press and the press office to get the word out or to keep the word from getting out is only one part of it. Uh, there are a lot of other ways that it is done. I mean, the use of presidential speeches, uh, which is something I feel strongly about, and uh, Lee Hubner is here, who's a former White House speechwriter for another president, uh, is another way to do it. Now, you're, you're counting on uh, the press to cover those speeches, but in this day and time, uh, the public is listening and watching those speeches without regard to what the press is saying, which is one of the great things about uh, modern democracy. Um, there are countless other ways that presidents are, are communicating, and it may not be the president himself. Uh, it could be the vice president, there, it could be the national security advisor, it could be the secretary of state, it could be the secretary of health and human services, on and on and on. So the White House Communications Office is really looking at all of these things from a more horizontal standpoint and trying to help, working with the chief of staff and the president and the others who are leading senior advisors in the White House, to develop those plans and then the rollout of those plans over time. Press is one important part of that. You have another function while Scott and Ron were interested in the reporters right in front of them. You and each agency of the government had a spokesman, spokesperson, press office, and you were the group that presumably brought them together or put out a message? Or well, you do, that, you do that in working with the press office because the press office has its direct uh, lines working with press secretaries and those operations and then there are communications offices and all those. It's a very elaborate system that, that we don't learn much about. It's interesting in a way the, the media don't really cover. Uh, it, I mean, the truth is what we and the public see about what is really happening in the conduct of government and the operation of the White House is a pinprick compared to what is going on on any given day. Uh, and a lot of times what's going on below the surface is just people moving their legs as fast as they can to stay afloat. But there's, there's a lot happening that we know nothing about. It's always interesting to me that uh, I run into people to this day who are just complete devotees of uh, West Wing, the TV show. And they, everyone wants to know how much is working in the West Wing like the TV show, the West Wing. And that show, which, you know, is off a little bit, but uh, it, it has done a much better job than the Washington Press Corps has ever done. And portrayed <laughs> what it's really like and what's happening and going on in the White House.
I say it's more like 24, but it's in eight years instead of one <laughs> for this administration. No, actually, uh, and, and Don made the point that the communications operation is more the strategic, longer-term thinking of one, two, even three, four, six, six months out, four weeks, three six months out. Yeah, or that's, yeah. Um, whereas the press operation is the day-to-day. -day. I mean, you're having to deal with uh, making sure you're getting accurate information to the to reporters, but gathering information, serving as the reporter inside the White House, going and checking your sources too, and then getting that information back to the reporters who are asking questions. Uh, and, and you don't get a lot of time to think long term uh, because you're having to deal with the day to day uh, in the multitude of the press corps. We had in, in the Bush presidency, uh, Bush White House, you had the uh, communications operation, you had the Office of the Press Secretary, you had the media, and the Press Secretary's office dealt with the National Press Corps. Uh, then the Office of Media Affairs, which dealt with the local media across the United States. And then, of course, the speech writing department. And then you have others, like the National Security Council has its own press apparatus as well, all coordinated together under the counselor to the president. Um, and that's how we were set up. And it's, I think, a little bit differently in the Clinton administration. I think media affairs might have been directly under the press secretary's office. Well, in the but, but you do coordinate among all those. Um, in, in the Ford administration, you had a very uh, uh, strange situation with office because it had been politicized by Nixon and a lot of those people you know got caught up in Watergate so initially uh, President Ford virtually abolished the communications office and we ended up with like three people and they sent out press releases to out-of-town newspapers that was their job but then when it got near the 76 campaign Everybody sort of realized, well, you needed more than just the daily press office. You needed somebody to think bigger thoughts about dealing with the media and especially around the country. And that's when Dave Gergen was brought in and the communications office was uh, built back uh, somewhat. And on the West Wing, <laughs> the, 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 the biggest difference from the real White House and the West Wing White House is people don't run around the corridors talking loudly to each other. They walk very softly. And they're very quiet. And they're not, yeah, the, the halls are not jammed with people. My other difference I always say is they all seem so much nicer to one another than I remember. <laughs> <laughs> you know, another difference is so much better looking. <laughs> yes, please, right there. Joe San Giorgio, I'm a student here at GWSMPA. My question is, uh, what should the standard be for a press secretary pushing back against the press, like calling an editor or criticizing a paper's editorial judgment if they deem that that outlet's being unfair? Most interesting question. Ron, did you push back? Uh, unfortunately, I did, but I realize now I shouldn't have. Uh, I don't think, I can't imagine a situation, well, let me, let me stop for a second. If, if there's an actual factual error made, then I think you have every obligation to correct that. Uh, obviously, you're not going to call an editor and complain about an editorial or a column or anything like that. Uh, you know, I, and then there's a practical reason, too, which is, uh, you know, you, the, the fact that the press secretary calls up and complains about something is going to be another news story. So whatever it was you wished would go away, you're just prolonging it by, by doing that. It's useless. It's a waste of time. you got enough on your plate without calling uh, editors and reporters up and complaining, except 
for factual errors. Scott, did you push back? I would tend to agree with that. I mean, if you're going to do that, you want it to be very rare beyond just the factual errors. The way I dealt with it, I'd call the reporter directly first. If I was having trouble there on the factual matter, then you'd go above that report. You'd probably let them, you would let them know that you're going to do that, but you'd work that behind the scenes quietly and make sure that they knew exactly what you were doing. I think that that kept the relationship strong. There are very rare occasions when what I would call a pick a fight briefing, when I might do that, simply for one objective, to generate some news. Because if you did stir up the controversy, then it would get you news on that subject matter. The example I would use was during the, what ultimately turned out to be the failed nomination of one of my colleagues, Harriet Myers, to the Supreme Court. There was a lot of focus on her views when it came to abortion. And we wanted to get the focus back on her qualifications. And so one day in a briefing, it was going along, I think it was halfway through the briefing, I wasn't going to do it unless there was an opportunity. A reporter started to ask about her views on that subject. And I kind of lit into that reporter a little bit. I said, all you guys want to talk about is her views on this. You don't want to talk about her qualifications or her credentials. And what happened was, all of a sudden, all the reporters in the room got, and again, I'd say very rarely used this, got their backs up and came to the defense of that one reporter. So we were going at it back and forth. But what happened was everybody reported it, and they reported what I was trying to get out about her qualifications. And the focus should be on that. So it worked to what I wanted to get done. And it got the subject off her views on abortion for a day. Yes, please. Hi, I'm Rob Kimmer. I'm a GW Law graduate, attorney, and journalist sometimes. My question actually goes back to the discussion you had on leaks. Obama had the reputation of no drama. Obama, he had a lot of control during his election, during the campaign, rather, and even somewhat during the transition. I see it sliding away. Now that he's picking sort of a superstar set of cabinets, each with their own egos and everything, do you think he's going to be able to have control, or do you think it's really going to just sort of go to the wayside and there are going to be leaks within each of the various cabinet-level agencies? I can answer that. But Don, do you want to start us off? Sure. I think it's a very astute question. And the answer is almost surely they're going to have a lot more trouble controlling than they have in the past, because every one of these superstars has longstanding relationships with the media of their own, and they have entourages around them, if you will, that have even deeper relationships with the media. And it's very hard for them to turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to those friends of theirs in the media who are constantly pelting them with questions and trying to find their way in. Having said that, President-elect Obama seems to have made it very clear that he doesn't like this kind of thing from the get-go, and he doesn't much tolerate it. We don't know everything behind the scenes there, but that's my impression. And I don't think any of these superstars is going to want to make the president unhappy. To start, right. So it'll be interesting to watch how that develops. Let's go to the questions of good leaks and bad leaks. Now, there are good leaks, and you see a lot of leaking going on right now in the lead-up to these announcements he's made, because it suits his needs to try to test it and see what kind of response he's going to get from the public. We call it plant. Right. 
who have never come to the State Department. But there is, I mean, that's from a reporter's point of view. From a president's point of view, it may be that he or she does not want the reporter who's been there for five years to report the story. Because that reporter may know much too much, may know the contradictions, the inaccuracies, not inaccuracies, but inconsistencies. And so I could see it um, that the reporter would be upset, but that the president would like to use the web in order on occasion, not always. Depends on what the issue would be, to get his point of view out in his way. This is a continuation of everything that we've had. It's just a different form of it. Nixon, for example, felt that the press out there were easier than the press here. You could also, he would have press conferences out in Sheboygan, out in Moline, and so forth, figuring that, okay, if he's talking to local reporters, he's going to get easier questions than national reporters. So there are variations, always have been variations on the theme, long before there was an internet. Scott mentioned the Office of Media Affairs that deals with the sort of press out in the country, or has at least in the Clinton administration and the Bush administration. And in the early days of the Clinton administration, you'll remember, there was a lot of controversy about the use of the Office of Media Affairs to go over the heads of the Washington press corps. And the Washington press corps was part of their bill of particulars, if you will, against the Clinton White House, in addition to the proposed plan to shut down the upper press office that was all seen as a kind of insult, or a set of insults to the national press corps. I do think that the national press corps, the elite Washington press corps, has been reconditioned, if you will, in recent years because of the advent of the internet and what's going on. And going back to something we talked about earlier, there's so much pressure and stress right now in the traditional media organizations. It's not only that they have competition, it's that the basic business models for these, especially the newspapers, but not just the newspapers, television journalism as well, is under so much stress that it'll be interesting to see how much they push forward to say, look, we have a certain sort of right here that is different than that which goes with others. Well, you know, Obama today at the news conference had an interesting moment when a reporter asked a question. I forgot right now what the issue was. But Obama did not choose to answer that reporter directly. And so he said, oh, we're just playing a game. You know, you do this and I do that. And the reporter said, no, I'm not playing a game. And I think the reporter was saying something terribly important. Because if the politician, president, begins to think that during the campaign, you know, it's kind of a game in the sense who's going to get on the evening news with the message. Once he's president and the issues become life and death issues in foreign affairs and economic issues and domestic policy, it's not a game. And the reporter who's asking the question is performing not only his professional responsibility, but a responsibility on behalf of millions of people who cannot ask the question but are concerned about the result. So I think in this case that presidents ought to recognize that they want to play a game and that they want to play with the websites, they have to be aware of the consequences. That was certainly a tactic. It was the issue of what he had said about Hillary Clinton's 
foreign policy views during the campaign. That's right. That's what exactly. it was. And it was, an, it was exactly. a, a tactic Obama yeah. used to try to get off the question and get away from exactly. that, what that reporter wanted to do, which was replay his own quotes back to him, <laughs> uh, which the reporter, yes, wanted something serious and wanted a serious response. Was, <laughs> but, it's, uh, it's an important question. Obama used that tactic to try to get away yeah. from it. Okay, I think we got time maybe for one or two questions. Do I see a hand up there? Yes. Right there, please. My name is Arnold Einhorn. I'm an emeritus professor at GW and at Georgetown. I'm very I'm not very knowledgeable in politics, not even GW and Georgetown. Uh, one of the conditions sine qua non for having press conferences is to have reporters. I read yesterday in the Post or in the Times that a major newspaper in California and several others are contemplating to outsource their reporters. And that particular newspaper is firing all its USA uh, uh, reporters and outsourcing them all. It seems sort of uh, a myth, but I don't think it is since we know that it's the most difficult thing now is to buy anything manufactured in the United States. Now, how do we can can we contemplate one day that uh, since things evolve so quickly nowadays, much quicker than when I was young, which is a long time ago, uh, and uh, that uh, Obama, President-elect Obama, will have to go to India to Bombay to hold a press conference <laughs> or elsewhere. That article it was a Pasadena local paper that, had, uh, in order to uh, save money, was outsourcing the reporting on local events um, in the Pasadena area. Um, it's an interesting question of whether you can outsource White House correspondence. I don't know. I, 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 I suspect not. I, I do. I, look, I want to say one thing because there's there is. It, it's easy enough to say that the press and communications uh, operatives are there to kind of help the president get his message out and to to uh, uh, use the press as one of the tools by which you do that. But Marvin makes an important point, which, which I think is important to, to, to raise, which is uh, the Washington Press Corps uh, it, it, it are people who have spent their lives, their careers, developing a sense of expertise about the areas that they cover. And it's not only the White House, it could be foreign policy and diplomacy in the State Department, or it could be the work of the Department of Labor, or it could be the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, they are important national assets, frankly, uh, in terms of helping all of us understand what's going on. But to be perfectly honest, they're important for the administration. Uh, and this is not, I think, what you imagine your role is, uh, although there's certainly plenty of reporters who'd like to think they're advisors to presidents. But uh, it is important because you have information and insight and understanding that the people in government need to understand and have access to as well. And so we all have an interest, I know this sounds like a civic lesson, but we all do have a serious interest in helping that business model uh, to stay robust so that we can continue really to pay the price of having those kinds of experts who are going to help make democracy work better. Yeah, but of course, you're quite, you're quite right that we are out, that the White House news is being outsourced. That is, the more and more newspapers and others will get their news, whatever it is of the White House, from wire services 
or the papers that are big enough, like the New York Times and the Washington Post, to have uh, to sell their material exactly. to other right. papers. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that they will get their information from somebody else. When the San Diego Union, uh, San Diego Union, is this, closes the White House uh, offices, Washington office, and, and that seat is vacant at the, at the press conference. What, what they lose there is anything that those reporters bring in that relates to San Diego. It's the, it's the people in San Diego who no longer have a sense of what's going on at the White House that directly relates to them. Sure, AP can tell them who, got, who became the uh, nominated for Secretary of the Treasury today. They don't need that. So they, you're, you're really quite right. There is an outsourcing of news every time one of these papers, uh, that is basically a regional paper, a local paper, decides that they no longer can afford to have somebody at the White House. We have almost run out of time. And what I would like to do is to ask our three panelists for a concluding thought, sort of 30 seconds in duration, and I'll start with Scott. Concluding thought. Um, uh, I guess on the whole Obama administration, I'll go to that, uh, that it's going to be very interesting to watch, uh, I think, two subjects that came up here, one at the beginning and one uh, towards the end of one of the questioners is you know, how open and transparent they're going to be going forward and how long that will last, and uh, how they're going to make use of that 10 million person database to uh, help advance the agenda and help to advance policies. Those are going to be the interesting things to watch, and if he's going to truly be a post-partisan president as he pledged to do. For me, that's what I'm watching more than anything, because that's why uh, I ended up supporting him at the end. Thank you. Doug? Uh, I guess if I had to sum up, my hope is that the Obama administration and President Obama will really communicate with the American people. It's not just about the press, it's about really reaching to the American people and, and, and maintain that conversation, which by the way in this day and time can be more two-way than we've had it in the past, and to use the tools and, and platforms of the presidency to continue to communicate because we are living and will be living in very difficult, perilous times. And the only way you hold a country together and move it forward, I believe, is by one, having effective policy that comes from having very good people around you and ideas, but two, being able to constantly communicate with the public. I guess my final thought would be that I think Obama has, uh, is enjoying and should enjoy a, a good feeling among the American people, and you and I have talked about this before, about having been elected president and how just not very many years ago when we were reporting stories, it could never have been even imagined. And I think everybody, uh, no matter what side you're on politically or ideologically, I think wishes him well because he represents, his election represents something very, very good about America. I don't have a concluding thought, but I, 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 uh, I have a commercial. You always have to end with a commercial message. This is, this is the third of our five conversations uh, with people who have been there on the presidential transition. I should tell you about the next two. Uh, the, the next Congress, the 111th Congress, uh, comes in on the 6th of uh, January. On the 7th of January, our subject will be uh, White House congressional relations with three people who are among the experts: that, uh, uh, Tom Carlogas, 
uh, Howard Pastor and Nick Kaleo on running the legislative programs uh, relations from the White House. Very interesting, very pertinent, very important for a president who wants to get the ground running. The next, on, on January 15th, five days before the inauguration, we will have uh, our last program, which will be with speechwriters uh, and the inaugural address. We'll have people here who actually helped write those inaugural addresses in the past, and that'll be our concluding program. Oh, my concluding thought? Yes, please. My 30-second concluding thought. Goes back to the gentleman who asked that last question about outsourcing and picks up one of the points that Don made. Uh, the success of this administration is going to be not only the ideas that are raised, but the way in which they're implemented, and part of that is communicating and getting the support of the American people. When great efforts are underway, led by presidents who may think of themselves as great, without the support of the American people, you end up nowhere. You end up as a failed president. So it is extremely important that the means of communication also be healthy and not be channeled into a corner as though it's unimportant. Um, Steve mentioned a moment ago about the AP and how central it is, the Associated Press, for all organizations that consider themselves news organizations around the United States. We now have one major Associated Press news agency. Just recently, CNN decided to begin its own press agency because CNN has the information about domestic and foreign policy. It can provide it also on the web and it can also make money and in the process weaken the Associated Press, which is in bad economic trouble right now. And what effect does that all have on the way in which we are governed? I say it's an issue for us all to be thinking about and we wouldn't be thinking about it unless Steve has wrote this book, which is up there somewhere in heaven. And for sale, we have fun. So by all means, thank you all very much for your